I would ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans 15. Um, that is a new song for many of us. Yeah? Okay. Um, <clears throat> it, is, uh, it is a helpful call to the adherence of the preaching of Scripture. It's a, a, a prayer that we would hear the Word and be changed by the Word. And Lord willing, uh, that's what will happen here in Romans chapter 15. Before I go there, <clears throat> I want to uh, I want to comment about something we sang that reminded me of Scripture, which of course are the best songs, the one that reminds us of Scripture, and a passage in particular in Colossians chapter one. There's a statement where Paul says, "I am glad to endure sufferings." to complete that which is lacking in the persecution of Christ. That's a perplexing statement. What, what that means is, those that would be contradictory to the gospel, and those that would even, those unredeemed, who would be the enemies of Christ, their indignation for Christ was not exhausted at his death. It lingered. And what would they do with that indignation? Well, they would direct that at the followers of Christ. And Paul says, I'm glad to be numbered among those who are seen by the wicked to be guilty by association. But the part that I want to draw your attention to is he says, I'm glad to endure affliction as a Christ follower. Let's go to Romans 15. With that in mind, that Christ followers before us have said, there are certain things we do not to add to the work of Christ. Not to make it more appropriate or to fill it up. It is full in Christ alone. But those of us who walk in Christ have a certain affliction, a certain obligation that we bear in walking by faith. So, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To building him up. That is, that is a, a pungent instruction. You and I are obligated to bear the failings of the weak and not to live a self oriented pursuit, but to please our neighbor for the sake of building them up. Here's why that is true of Christ's followers. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. That's a quote from Psalm 69. The reproach of those who reproached God fell on Christ. And then, I won't teach this verse, but it's important explanation of verse 3. Verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, 
we might have hope. So this text is for our instruction. Uh, You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, Before I start the sermon this morning, I want to comment. Thanks. Thanks. I actually uh, ran out of time to go get one this morning. Yeah, but it was on my mind. Thank you, Mike. Leave it to a man who speaks for a living to think about the speaker. That's <laughs> Well, thank you. Anyway, Mike. <clears throat> the woman now gave us me. Um, I just want to say a quick word before I start here about um, um, the church search team. I know you've been praying for us. We have been... Uh, we have been glad to be blessed by your praying. And so the search team is looking to add um, an elder, a staff elder, to the church. And uh, there's, there's been some long and some difficult meetings. And as you can imagine, that is not light work. But uh, we are pleased to say that there is progress being made. And we hope, <clears throat> uh, possibly in the next week, to be able to announce to you that we may have someone to introduce you to. And so... <clears throat> um, Keep praying, keep praying, pray for discernment, pray for faithful congregationalism. We're a congregational church, and we're about to put a significant responsibility in your hands, so be praying that you'll be ready for it when it gets to you, but it seems like uh, we're coming close to um, an opportunity to have you start considering the possibility of a particular candidate. So I just want to bring you up to speed on that and ask you to keep praying. In light of that, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the way that you answer prayer. It, it, may, it may be for all of eternity a wonder of wonders that the sovereign, ruling, all-knowing, omnipotent God has decreed prayerfulness to be included in the relationship with your children. And yet... We see in faith, and it is proven, we are, we are learning the fruitfulness of prayer. And so as we pray for our church, for search team, for future candidates, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in the way that we pray. We don't pray as though we are an authority to conjure up enough determination to manipulate your will, but we pray, God, that as we trust you as a good gracious, loving Father, we pray that we would be humbled and grateful and thankful as we receive blessings that come from you, as we receive direction from you, instruction and edification. So Lord, today as we study this passage, help us to see this instruction written for our learning. There's, there's real potential for disruptive community and so we're thankful to have instruction to guard us like the instruction we have here in these verses in Christ's name amen the question about this passage or the question that comes to our soul from this passage is one about the testimony of Christ himself seeing the way Christ oriented himself how can any Christian live contradictory to Christ. True? I mean, it seems like that question doesn't even need to be asked. How can a Christ follower 
operate knowingly in a contradictory way to the very testimony of Christ. And yet, we're so weak in our flesh. We're vulnerable to do exactly that. Christ following is introduced at the beginning of this next chapter as the solution to the very real danger of disunity. Disunity is a reality. And it's dangerous and it's blasphemous. It's not just unpleasant. When brothers and sisters who are living together in community, in covenant community, when we experience disunity, it's more than just an unwelcomed or uncomfortable disruption. It is, in fact, friends, blasphemy. And I hope to point that out from Scripture as we walk through this morning's sermon, the title of which is The Failings of the Week and the Reproach of Christ. The failings of the week, that is us, and the reproach of Christ, his testimony of suffering and endurance in the will of God. So, this brings us to another question, that is, why did Christ accommodate our weakness at all? Well, we know from Scripture that it was the will of God. It was his will to be mindful toward us. It was his will that we be united together in a way that is particular, exceptional. It is the will of God in Christ that you and I be knit together in unity in a way that is extraordinary. By our love for each other, by our perseverance together, by our unity in spirit, by our oneness in baptism and fellowship and communion, by that singular, particular bond of peace, we radiate a testimony of Christ. The world knows that we belong to him by the way that we have particular affection, the bonds of unity together. So in all this talk about liberty and love and offense and care, it can burrow shallowly into our hearts if we don't grasp the motive for the whole thing. Just hearing the Bible say, get along and play nice, we would sadly miss the point. Because the point is the testimony of Christ in the Christian church. It's bigger than just put up with each other. It's bigger than just be patient with each other. It is the testimony of Christ in the Christian church. Here's, here's why it's so important. Our unity as brothers and sisters, our unity, I don't mean the unity of every Christian on the planet. That is not the nature of, of Romans 14 and 15. This is about the gathered brothers and sisters. This is about us in discipleship, relationship, in worship, community together. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. Psalm 133 says in, the, in the, worship, the worship hymn book of Psalm 133, how good it is when brothers walk together in unity. It's the will of God. And even more pointedly, it is clearly the will of Christ. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Our head prayed for us that we would be united in our fellowship, that they may be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. Our unity is a 
testimony of Trinitarianism. That the Son and the Father are united. That the Spirit and the Son and the Father are one. It is the will of Christ, it is the will of God, and then it is the will of the Spirit of God. When we read Acts chapter 2, you probably know the historical account of Acts chapter 2. When we read Acts chapter 2, we find there that the Spirit works in an extraordinary way. It's the way that we've come to see as the Christian church. It's regeneration. In Acts chapter 2, when you get down to verse 42 through 47, you read a powerful testimony about the way the church was knit together. They were all together with all things in common. So for this sermon right here, the strong have obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not selfishly, but selflessly for their edification because that's Christian. Because it's Christian. Because Christ, Christ withstood, persevered, endured the reproach of our sin as an offense to God, Christ bore that at the cross. So, just two points for this morning. The first one is the obligation that we have in our fellowship. The obligation we have in our fellowship. The second one is the object lesson of Jesus Christ. Okay? So the first thing I want to say to you is that we have obligation from Scripture. In other words, verse 4. These things are written for our instruction. Let's hear what the Bible tells us to do. And then secondly, let's see that what we're called to do should be, should be simply natural. We're Christ followers. Let's do things like Christ. Okay, let's get into the first one. Our obligation. Now, this isn't super uh, popular preaching in, in an attempt to, to grow the Christian church in a way, you know, the church growth movement. Like, point number one, here's your job. Do it or else. That, that's, that's not a super pleasant Sunday morning message. Uh, all right, everybody, you came and let me give you some work to do. Oh, okay, I didn't have enough going on. Now you're going to tell me about my obligations in church. Well, yeah, here they are. The obligation we have, verse 1 and 2, let's, let's read it again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. That's the word edification. Don't be selfish, but build each other up. And who has that obligation? Well, he says, the strong do. The strong. Do you feel like that's you? One of the temptations of our flesh, the devil, demons, one of the temptations is to feel like we are never the strong. Like we are always the one in need of someone else's care, but never quite prepared to be the caregivers. He says here that the strong have obligation. So maybe a bunch of you just went, all right, whoever the two or three strong in the room are, this point is for them. Well, who exactly are the strong in this context? These are Christians who operate in a clear conscience. So rather than shaping their worship around their past experience, Their worship is formed by the truth of the gospel. So, if you are 
a ransomed sinner. You're, you're bought by the blood of Christ. Okay, that's the first part of being strong. But the second part is more than just being adopted. The second part is that your view of God's will for you is shaped more by the gospel, the message of truth of Jesus Christ, than it is by whatever you did in your past. So whatever might condition your, quote, worldview, is it the good news of Jesus Christ, or is it something you feel guilty about from your childhood, or from a time before you were saved? The strong are Christians who are worshiping God in a clear, guiltless conscience. So who, who is that? Maybe, maybe right now I would invite you to say, Lord, is that me? Do I worship you in a clear conscience, seeing the work of Christ completing my fellowship with you? Or do I bring in some baggage from my past, saying, you know, I, I did a lot of bad stuff. And I think the only way to be a good Christian is to stop doing all the bad stuff. Because that stuff made me feel guilty. You're being conditioned by your experience at that point, not by the gospel. Now here's the reality. I'm not trying to get all of you to confess yourself to be in the strong category. Because there's two groups of people in verse 1. Right? The strong are obligated to bear the weak. So I I know that there are also weaknesses in the room. Here's what I would say pastorally. You should not see yourself exclusively in one group or the other. But you should see yourself at any given moment as a both and. We are are sometimes the weak and we are sometimes the strong. It kind of depends on the moment and the question at hand. So the strong have obligation. And I would say to you pastorally, That in some moment, that's going to include all of us. We have obligation. The burden of responsibility rests on the Christian who knows their liberty from sin and its guilt. The strong must bear. He says next. The strong has obligation, responsibility, decree, instruction to bear with the failing of the weak. This is not impatient tolerance. Oh, that person again. I know the Bible told me I have to put up with them. The word bear is really helpful. It means get under a heavy weight with someone else. I, I'm sorry that this application will be a bit of a stretch, or this illustration will be a bit of a stretch for some of you. I don't know if all of you have ever been in a, a weight room where there's heavy lifting that goes on. I don't know if you have. And so this illustration, it's helpful for me, but I know it might be a stretch for some. I wish I could have come up with something maybe a little more broad. But here's my illustration. We're obligated to bear, get under the heavy weight with someone else. Um, Picture the weight room. One of the, one of the challenging lifts that will happen is what's called bench press, a bench press. And bench press carries with it a degree of risk because sometimes a lifter will put too much weight 
on the bar and not be able to get it back up. And there are accounts of people who have died in the weight room because the weight comes down and they can't push it back up and it will roll up onto their throat and they'll suffocate and die. There are accounts of that. So a decent practice in in the weight room is to always have a spotter. A spotter. Now the spotter will stand near the head side of the bench press and be there. A good spotter will keep his hands or her hands on the bar as it travels up and down. And a really good lift should end with the spotter having to finish the last set. So if the person on the bench doing the lifting is really growing stronger, there should need to be some assistance at the end by the spotter. Now, when we read in this passage that the strong are obligated to bear, to get under the heavy weight or load with someone else, that's the picture of a spotter. You might be in a weight room sometimes and you'll see someone as a spotter get distracted. And it's very dangerous. They take their responsibility lightly and it's a great risk to the person who is working out, the person who's getting stronger. It's a real risk. Listen to what Colossians 3.13 says. Bear with each other. If one of you has a complaint against another, forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So it seems like the attitude that's necessary for me to be a good spotter is to see the way Christ has gotten under my heavy weight, the law, and lifted it for me, and to have a preferential, genuine affection for other Christ followers. Like, if we don't have those two things, a right comprehension of what Christ has done for us, and a genuine affection for those brothers and sisters who follow Christ, we're not going to be very good spotters. We're not going to fulfill the obligation to bear their weakness. I'm going to come back to that illustration in our conclusion. But listen to what we're supposed to bear. It's not the bench press. You might be surprised. You thought the rest of verse 1 was going to talk about the bench press. Bear what? He says their failings. Or the New American says their weakness. That particular word is only used in this spot in scripture. But there's a similar word used in Matthew 8, which is good for setting our perspective on where we're headed in point two. Bear their failings. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 that Christ took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Christ got under the heavy weight and lifted it. For us. If I could take you again back to chapter 14, a passage I think is the keystone of chapter 14, and that's the verse 17. Go back again to Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. And what does it tell us? It says, don't become preoccupied with things like diets and holy days and preferences, because that's not what the kingdom is about. When our passions are directed toward those other things, we are not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
So, Romans chapter 14, verse 17, gives us a description of what the kingdom summation is. Perceive the kingdom of Jesus Christ this way. Righteousness. Being made innocent before God under the blood of Christ. Declared forgiven. Being then at peace. And then in full confession of faith, knowing I am righteous by the blood of Christ, therefore I have peace with God the Father, I will walk in perpetual joy. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Christ. The failing that we read here, or the weakness that we're reading, is a Christian who is not fully convinced of that truth. Righteousness by the blood of Christ Therefore, peace with the Father, and therefore an unshakable access to joy. Bear with that Christian. It's important to note that some of our very careful preferences are not badges of holiness, but failings, weaknesses. I know that that is a nuance that has been, it's been hard to divide, isn't it? Because when we read all this about weaker brothers and stronger brothers and using your liberty, not as an offense, it might always seem like the safest solution to applying Romans 14 and 15 is just to have a healthy, long list of thou shalt nots. But in fact, how often Do we display our weakness in gospel confidence by building ourselves a checklist of things we do to be right with God? But that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is alien righteousness. It is substitute atoner, someone else, making you right before God. That is Jesus. If God has not called it sin... We should have our minds transformed, this is Romans 12 too, by the mercy of God, that by testing we might discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's the, that's the context of Romans 15. I'm begging you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable because you're a worshiper in the temple, a priest worshiping before God. So let's discern in that worship what is the will of God. If the Bible has not spelled it out as sin, our default should not be to say, well, but it could be. Or if I do it too much, it will be. Or someone else might think that it is. We should in fact... Discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The obligation here of the strong is to bear the weight of that sensitive conscience. Not to please ourselves. You see next? Bear that burden, bear that weight, get under there. Not because being under heavy weight with someone else who put too much weight on the bar and now can't lift it is pleasant. Not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. Well, I mean, there's a sermon full of instruction right there. Right? I mean, any sermon on 
Christians operating in a way not to please themselves sounds completely countercultural. Everything about our fallen nature, everything about our lingering appetite to sin, ultimately wants to please itself. This commission is only possible for the body of Christ. This sort of selfless care for other people is only truly, in long term, possible in the body of Christ. God's dwelling with us is for our ongoing holiness. So we see in Corinthians, the church that was selfish, it's hoarding communion. It's gluttonous at communion, eating up all the elements, getting in line first, and devouring the opportunity to worship in communion. We see it in the Jewish church James wrote to. In James chapter 2, he talks about when people come in, there's this selfishness, a preference for a certain elite class. And they say selfishly to the poor, here, you come sit here next to my footstool. There are examples of times where Christ followers have been woefully guilty of pleasing themselves. And here we're told, don't do that. Don't be self-oriented, but rather get under the weight of someone else's bar and do what isn't pleasant, but is Christian. He, so he says this, he, he pivots here, right here. But, don't be selfish, but, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That is the word edification. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. What is his good? Not having a difficult conversation with anybody ever? Never being told they're wrong? No. What is his good? Building them up. Be patient. Get under the weight. Not selfishly, but selflessly, thinking more of them than yourself, so that, here's the end game, build them up. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about how he tries to do that. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, give offense to Jew or Greek or to the church of God. I try to please everyone and everything. Not seeking my own advantage, but that advantage of many, that they might be saved. The reason for this is not just to accommodate the weakness of other Christians. It is for building them up. Edification. The goal for getting underweight with someone else is not to try to build uniformity. Like, okay, let's, let's, take, let's take the one weakest Christian in the room. Who would that be? Anybody want to volunteer? You're, no, don't do that. The weakest Christian in the room, okay? Like, you, man, your conscience is like running guilt races while you sleep, okay? Like you dream about doing something God's not happy about, okay? And you got this super, super weak conscience. But you go in the weight room, let's say it's a Sunday morning weight room, and you're in here, and, and you load up 580 pounds on your bench press. And you're like, okay, all right. And you get under that, and it takes, like, it takes like three dozen of us to get under that bar with you just to lift it up because you've got a really, really weak conscience and you've put way too much weight on the bar. We all come down and get under that with you. The goal is not 
to get everyone under the bar bearing the weight of one person's weakness. That's not the goal. That's not the goal in the weight room. It's not the goal in discipleship. It's not the goal of sanctification. The goal of sanctification is edification. Build them up. Not just to forever do the work for them. Like the weak conscience in the room puts 560 pounds on the bar and, and we're basically lifting the whole thing for them. That is not the goal. The goal is building them up. It's edification. Listen to Psalm 120. The psalmist, this is a psalm of ascent. They're headed from wherever they're coming from and they're going up to Mount Jerusalem and they're going to worship and their hearts are thrilled. And here's what he says. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I'm for peace. But whenever I speak, they are for war. He talks about going to worship and he says, oh, I'm so glad to be going to worship because when we get there and when we all lift like one voice of worship to God, there's going to be peace there. So he says, don't operate in a way to have conflict, but operate in a way to have peace and that way is edification of each other. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against those things, there's no law. Peace. The truth is that when you think about how to operate with a weak conscience, a a flesh-manipulated friend. The truth is, it is very easy to think that peace has to include flattery or condoning of their misbehavings. And that's wrong. That's not what this passage calls us to, but rather to build them up. Get under the weight. We're obligated. Get under the weight, but not to do all the work for someone else but to build them up. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. So he says that in verse 11. Then listen to down a little bit later in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not even counting trespasses against sinners and entrusting to us that good news. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For the sake of sinners, God made Christ to be sin even though he himself knew no sin, so that sinners could become the righteousness of God. If nothing else, if you say, I don't know what you mean by edify, how do I edify, how do I edify? Be ambassadors of the good news that says, in Christ, we can be completely made right, or I might say, at peace with God. 
And I would say, Christian, that if you are living with a consuming guilt of an overactive conscience, I want to come to you as an ambassador of the good news and say, you don't have to operate that way. The kingdom is the declaration that the blood of Christ is sufficient for all of your righteousness. And because you're made righteous with the Father, you have peace there. And if anything that you ever experience produces joy, it should be that. That obligation lies with the ambassador. It lies with the messenger. To get there under the weight and say, hey, I'm here to do this with you. And my contribution is going to be rehearsing the good news of Jesus Christ in your ear while you feel overwhelmed with the weight of whatever you're feeling guilty about. That obligation rests with the strong. And I want to remind you, I I truly believe that everyone who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ, everyone who understands 2 Corinthians 5, that we're ambassadors, we're, we're supposed to herald reconciliation. That in some way, all of us are the strong. And in some way, all of us are the weak. And a good father put us in the same room. And said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will always contribute providentially to your care. Go sit in a room together and do life together. And when you're weak, I will have put someone fitly joined together in your fellowship who's strong there. And they'll get under the weight with you and lift it. And when you think that you're strong, I have some exercise for you to do. I'll have you walk with some weak people and you're going to have to do some heavy lifting as a spotter. And you'll be stronger for it. Let's get into number two. Why is that the model God has for us as a Christian church? Number two, because it's the object lesson of Jesus himself. Like the Christian church, the body of Christ should look like Christ. So let's read verse 3. Christ did not please himself. It's easy to do. I mean, I'm telling you that in this passage, the gospel affords you liberty, liberty, liberty. But Christ, having all that liberty, did not please himself. But, in fact, it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The verse opens up with, for Christ. Even Christ, who being God, would not please himself, but rather operated as a servant. So if our head the one we are being transformed into the likeness of, had all prerogative to possess all liberty, but didn't. But got under the heaviest of weight and lifted it off our shoulder. Christ didn't seek to please himself. What would, what would it be like if Christ operated the way we're telling the church that it shouldn't operate? What if, what if Christ did seek his own and said, oh, those burdens, those are someone else's? What would he have, what would he have done? 
What would, you, what, would, what would Christ's testimony be today if Christ was seeking his own pleasure? Well, he never would have left heaven, right? Listen, listen to what the Bible says in John, John 17. In that high priestly prayer I mentioned before, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Like, what's going to happen now at the cross? Make it be similar to the same glory that I shared with you in eternity past. All of that before the incarnation. Before being formed as a servant. Listen to what he says in John 6. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. From glory to reproach. He says, the reproach of those that reproach you fell on me. He's quoting from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is understood by most Bible students to be a reference to the sufferings of Calvary. And it says here, listen, I, want you to, I want you to hear this closely. Jesus did not come to forgive the sins committed against us. Okay, so it, it could be tricky. The reproaches of those that reproach you, God, Psalm 69. The offense, the transgressions, the rebellion, the sin against God, fell on Jesus. The reproach of those that reproached God fell to Jesus Christ. Because the cross is not so much about making sinners right with God, but making a righteous judge right with sinners. It is to transform the blasphemer into the worshiper that God would be made much of. Not so that man would be made much of. Would you take your Bible back to Romans 14 again and look at verse 15 this time. As we think here about Christ bearing the reproach, the sin, the iniquity directed toward the Father, look back to Romans 14, 15. Christ was willing to endure reproach for the restoration of God to the fallen. Reconciliation. He appeases God's wrath. The application of that truth about Christ bearing the reproach, the offense that we committed against the Father, the application of that is that we do not seek for a community of Christians to be conformed to ourselves. We are trusting that the work being done here among Christ followers is that we are a community of people being conformed to the image of Christ. So not uniformity. We are not, and, and I don't know why it is, I mean, truthfully it is, and I, it's, it's, it's not necessarily inherently bad, but it could be. Why does there seem to be so much uniformity in most local congregations? Like, why, why do we all have so many things in common apart from Christ? Why, why do we all tend to have a lot of similarities? 
Is it because the only way we can walk in fellowship is to have secondary things in common? Uniformity can't be the reason that we're comfortable praising God together. It it can't be the reason that we're eager to disciple each other. You're like me. You're, You're of similar economic status. You're of similar age. You like the same worship style. So I will disciple you. That that can't be the gospel, right? We are not pursuing uniformity, but rather transformation to the image of Jesus Christ himself. So verse 4 says, this should be your operation because this is Christ. The apostle, I I told you I wasn't going to study verse 4. But I just, want, I just want you to see why verse 4 explains what I'm saying about verse 3. Verse 4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So what is Paul being used by the Spirit to instruct us? Right now, what's the lesson in class? What is our lesson? I would break it down into three points. I think it's this. To make it clear that the sufferings of Christ were ordained by God. That liberates us from a perspective of Christianity that is consumerism or maybe you know the word hedonistic, like self-oriented. It's selfish. The fact that Christ's sufferings were ordained by God means that our sufferings are not contrary to God's power. God hasn't stopped being in control when we live in a community of brothers and sisters where it's not always super easy. Because that's not Christ. God didn't ordain that our head would never struggle. He says, I don't have a house. Foxes and birds, they have houses. I don't have a bed. That's Christ. Yet sometimes when we think about caring for each other, we think, I will, as long as it's not inconvenient. As long as it's not offensive or disruptive or unpleasant, then I'll do what Christ did. (laughs) That's a hard illustration to make. Secondly, why is this passage for our instruction? The reference to Christ not pleasing himself is certainly a reference to crucifixion. So the reproach, the reproach. Think about the cross. Think about the reproach. Think about one in particular. You say you're the son of God. If that were true, get yourself down. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Sin. The church father, Chrysostom, said this. He had power not to have been reproached. Power not to have suffered what he did suffer. If he had minded to be looking for his own things. What gave the endurance 
to persevere, to bear the reproach of sin was not a lack of power. If he could have changed it, he would have. It was not. It was a mindfulness to do the bidding of his father. And so I wonder, again, verse 4, these things are written for our instruction. Here's my instruction. Do you right now have a mindfulness to do the will of God? Do you remember at our opening, it is the will of God that we be unified? It is the will of Jesus that we be unified? It is the will of the Spirit that we be unified? Do we have a mindfulness to do his will? Third, Paul is teaching the strong to put their suffering in perspective. Okay, so here. We will suffer at the hands of each other. Oh, that's a sad reality. We'll hurt each other. We'll offend and ignore, mistreat each other. We'll be trite with each other. Dismiss each other. That's sad. But it's true. Because we are not yet, like Will prayed, what we should be. But think about the things we choose to disagree about. And put whatever that is in perspective with how Jesus got under your weight. And then ask yourself, is there any weight that your brother or sister might put on you that you don't think you should have to carry? Because after all, we're Christian. Walking patiently with a disciple should not seem like much of a burden when we keep our perspective on Christ and the way he bore our weakness. And oh, what weakness it is. For me, as I read that, my mind races back to Romans 5 through 8. But could I just share with you Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5? You want to turn back to Romans 5, 1 through 5? I think that this is a wonderful commentary on verses 3 and 4 of 15. So let's read Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are not just placed where we are by grace. We remain where we are by grace. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our, would you say the next word with me? Suffering. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian, we stand where we stand by grace. But it doesn't mean there won't be some suffering together while we stand there. Because we're in life together with other offenders, other sinners. And so, we rejoice in our suffering 
I guess this is next level instruction. I could tell you, you are obligated to spot someone else who's lifting what they're too weak to lift. The truth is, you know what? I don't, I don't, again, I don't know how, I hope this picture is effective for you. It's helpful for me. Um, but if you've ever been a spot, and by the way, it's not effective for me because I'm like a super gym rat. I mean, it's <laughs> not the case. But I happen to be in the gym while a lot of other strong people are lifting. Um, I just observe. Um, and, and then I yell at them for not working out hard enough. Um, but I personally have not needed a spotter in 20 years. Okay, so... <laughs> You can see that spotter, and you can see that lifter, and you might just feel like in this faith family, you are getting way too much workout as a spotter. And so I'm telling you, you're obligated to spot them. But then this passage says, you're not just obligated, like, oh, I gotta save this person's life again and pull the bar off their neck. Romans 5 says, Not only that, we rejoice in getting under heavy weight with family members who are having a hard time in their conscience. So I wonder, that's that's a paradigm shift. I, I wonder if we would be people who would perceive our Christian church and all of its weaknesses as a great providence from God. Wow! God, you have put me in a faith family of people who are such a mess. This is fantastic. I'm getting workout every time I talk to one of them. And, and I have this endurance that just grows and grows and grows because they're terrible. That's a paradigm shift, right? That is not a Western perspective of belonging to anything. However, it's amazingly Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The will of God is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. So that Christ might be the prize, the radiant center of who we are. Why do you guys put up with each other? Because Jesus is in the middle of who we want to be. And so... We, we kind of are excited when we do church life with people who are a mess. Because God's will is for me to be more like Jesus. And Jesus lifted weight from really weak people who were an unbelievable hot mess. And so I would say to us as disciples that we have this obligation, sure. And the reason we have it is because we're pursuing Christ-likeness. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But I would also tell you that the gospel is not a call for you to do things by obligation. The gospel is a liberating righteousness, peace, and what's the third thing? What's the word? Joy. joy. It's joy. This chapter 15 didn't just change the dynamic of the kingdom. Like, okay, the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, you're all obligated. Fulfilling that obligation is great joy. It's great joy. Being others-oriented 
because of our genuine affection for Christ, because of wanting to magnify him, that's not obligation. That's joyful worship. Let's do that. Let me pray. Father, this passage is amazingly equipping for your children. You have never left us to our own faculties to try to figure out how to operate together. But all these things have been written for our instruction. And oh, the testimony of Jesus Christ. We do bear with each other. We are obligated. We're obligated to sometimes lift more than our flesh wants to lift for someone else. But cause us to keep turning our attention back to Christ. To keep in perspective our weakness and the way that he bore all of our iniquity, all of the reproach an offense to holy God he has carried. And so Lord, make us to operate as not just a church, but a Christian church to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.